seats. If you have your copy of scripture, I want to invite you to turn over to Romans chapter 9. I know that half of you have been waiting eagerly for me to get to Romans 9, and half of you probably weren't. But we are here, and it is glorious, and it is going to be good that God has us in this section of scripture. And so I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 9 this morning, and we're going to pick up where we left off last Lord's Day, and we're going to look at verses 6 down through verse 29. One of the great chapters in the Bible, um, I'll say this this morning, and I'll elaborate on this here momentarily, but Romans 9, it has been rightly said, has turn people away from the Christian faith. I don't want you to miss that because of self-righteousness and pride in the human heart. And it has caused the greatest worship of God among those that believe the Lord and who see their need for Christ. It is, it is, it is not a chapter that's going to leave you unchanged or unaffected unless you're just totally checked out this morning. And so I want to encourage you to be reading along with me as we look at Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. And we're going to read down to verse 29. The apostle has transitioned out of that great section of Romans 8 where he has ended by saying there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And then that naturally segued into the question, well, what about Old Covenant Israel, Old Testament theocratic Israel? Uh, They didn't believe. It seems like they've been separated from the love of God in Christ. And so Paul says, my heart's desire is that they may be saved because God gave them enormous privileges. He gave them them promises. He gave them the covenants. He gave them the worship. He gave them all of those external spiritual blessings that should have brought them to faith in Christ. And ultimately, the greatest blessing is that from them Christ came. In the flesh, who is God over all, blessed forever. And so Paul's heart is that they may be saved. Now, Paul is going to tell us why so many of them were not saved throughout redemptive history. And while he has revealed his great evangelistically burdened heart for his countrymen, he is now going to explain why so many of them did not believe, even though they had been given all those privileges And so Paul now says in chapter 9, verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Let me read that again. It is not as though the word, and you could read the promise, the covenant promises of God, has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all who are children of Abraham, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, and here Paul quotes Genesis 18 through Isaac, shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. And again, he quotes Genesis 18, where the Lord says to Abraham, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, 
in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me, then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, or will essentially um, what is molded, what is formed like pottery. Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. Her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, that the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, Only a remnant will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I grew up in a home in which my, my father very diligently taught my sister and me the scriptures. And I remember as a very, very young boy, probably five or six, maybe seven years old, my dad teaching my sister and me very carefully and very slowly what is taught in this chapter. I remember it vividly. I was sitting on the floor in our living room, and my dad was explaining Things like God will have mercy on whomever he will, and God will harden whomever he will. And that God is sovereign over the salvation and the damnation of his people. And I remember as a very young boy, not in a saving sense, but just in a logical sense, thinking if God is infinite, if God is contained by nothing but himself, I'm sure I didn't parse it out quite as carefully as this, but I remember thinking that makes sense. God can do whatever he wants to do with whoever he wants to do it with. Because if he's made everything, he is ultimate, we are not. He is sovereign, we are not. He is independent, we are dependent. And it made sense to my little mind. 
When I was about 15 years old, many of you know, I started substantially rebelling and running to a whole lot of darkness. I left the church, I left my family, I moved to another state, and I found myself 22 years ago at the very bottom of the gutter. And I was sitting outside of a country club in which I was serving as a chef, and I remember smoking my cigarette thinking, when is God going to save me or kill me? When is God going to save me or kill me? Now, that's called hyper-Calvinism. I won't unpack that for you. But then I started thinking, maybe God made me to be a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction. And that's what drove me to Jesus. Now, you may hate hearing that, and that may drive you away from Christ, but what it did for me was it drove me into the arms of the Savior because I didn't want to be a vessel of wrath. Now, let me say this this morning. I've only met one other person who had that experience in their conversion experience, and I think it ought to be more common than it is. What most people do when they come to Romans 9 is they say, well, I don't really like that. It doesn't matter what you think. I don't know how to say that softly this morning. Paul says, Paul says that. He says, who are you, O oh man? Who are you? To reply to God, will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Now, let me say this at the outset. There are many wrong ways to approach what the Apostle Paul is teaching in Romans 9, 6 through 29. One way is to say that God is sovereign over the salvation of all people, so it doesn't matter whether you believe or not. Whoever he chooses is going to be saved. Whoever he damns is going to be damned. That is not what the apostle is teaching. In fact, at the end of this chapter, Paul talks about those Jews and Gentiles upon whom God has had mercy, believing and trusting in him. They put their trust in him. It it matters very much if we're trusting in the Lord Jesus. But the order in which that occurs also matters. And the doctrine of grace in its greatness is built on the truths in this chapter. Anything less than understanding what Paul is actually saying in here is to cheapen the biblical doctrine of grace and to fail to really understand what the grace of God is and how it's operative in my life. Now, I want us to consider three things as we look at this this morning. I got three Ps for y'all. I don't know how I did this, but here we go. We're going to look at the people of God's sovereign electing grace from verses 6 and following. Then we're going to look at the principle of God's sovereign electing grace. And then we're going to look at the purpose of God's sovereign electing grace. The people, the principle, and the purpose. Well, notice as Paul has been already introducing that subject of what about Israel? What about my countrymen according to the flesh? Why have they not believed the gospel? Why have they not trusted in the Lord Jesus if he is the Christ who came to them and came to redeem Jews and Gentiles? Why, why have they not put their trust in him? And and Paul has, has said his heart's desire is that they would. Why, why would Paul have that burden? Because Paul had been an unbelieving Jew. And Paul had experienced the saving, sovereign grace of God on the Damascus Road. And Paul wanted the same thing that happened to him to happen to them. And yet, the apostle understood from Scripture, from the Old Testament, that, that there was a nation within the nation. There was a people within the people. And that it was never about the ethnic nation, ultimately. It was about the remnant of those within Israel that God had chosen 
to save, to open their eyes, to redeem, and to draw to Christ. Now, where, where do we see that? Notice there in verse 6, Paul says, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are of Israel or belong to Israel. Now, the question that Paul raises here at the outset when he introduces the people of God's sovereign electing grace is the question, has God's promise failed? Because when I read the Old Testament, when I read especially the major and the minor prophets, God gives these great promises of redemption, promises of forgiveness, promises of restoration. And those promises are couched in the language of God blessing Jacob or Israel. In in fact, there are so many names um, for the people of God that God addresses in the prophets. Daughter of Zion, daughters of Jerusalem, Israel, Jacob, Ephraim, Judah. There are all these these nicknames for the people of God. And, and God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be merciful to you. I'm going to forgive your iniquity and your transgressions and your sins. I'm going to wash you with clean water, and, and I'm going to cleanse you from your impurities. I'm going to redeem you to myself. You're going to return to me. And Paul is looking at that, and he's seeing that most of Israel did not believe in Jesus, rejected Christ, rejected God's offers of mercy, cried out, crucify him, crucify him, and most will perish. And Paul is raising the objection that someone might raise. If all of these people are not believing the gospel and God gave them all of these promises, has God's promise failed? Now, Paul is going to give a very, very brilliant answer, and he's going to explain that far from God's promise failing, God's promise is directed sovereignly to a people within that people. He's going to do it in verse 6, and he's going to do it at the end of our passage when he says, unless the Lord had left us a remnant, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And he quotes Isaiah out of Isaiah 1. And what the apostle is saying is within corporate Israel, the nation of Israel in the Old Covenant, within that massive body, and Isaiah again said it was like the sand of the sea in number, there was a remnant, there was a true Israel within Israel, and they were the people to whom the promises of God were made effectual. Um, We see this at the birth of Christ, when Jesus is born and Mary brings him into the temple. And it's amazing when you look at the birth narratives about the the incarnation of Jesus, how few people come and worship him, how few people understand who has just come into the world. But there's always little individuals here and there. There's there's that aged uh, prophetess Anna in the temple. Who, who waited and fasted night and day for 84 years, Luke says. And, and she went, after seeing the infant Jesus, she went, Luke says, and spoke of him to all who were looking for redemption in Jerusalem. So there was a small group of people. They knew each other. They were hoping in redemption. The rest were not. Simeon in the temple. Now I can depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. But listen very carefully, it was always and only a remnant who would believe and trust in him. There is an Israel within Israel, and that is the true Israel. Now, Paul is going to distinguish the people in a couple ways. 
Notice verse 6, and I want you to look carefully at this. Um, All who are descended from Israel do not belong to Israel. And then he does this contrast a different way in verse 8. He says this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Now, what Paul is very clearly saying is that the physical descendants of Abraham had no claim to salvation based on their fleshly physical descent. If I could put it this way, if you didn't have the faith of Abraham in your heart, it doesn't matter if you had the blood of Abraham coursing through your veins. If you don't have the faith of Abraham in your heart, it doesn't matter if you have his blood in your veins. Now, this is something that is enormously important because through the better part of the 20th century, and you probably, some of you were in churches that taught this, everything was so ethnic Israel-centric that you failed to get this principle. But when we are Christ-centered and we are God-centered and we are God's sovereignty and salvation-centered, We have to understand that physical descent does not in any way, shape, or form whatsoever put you in a better standing than other people. In fact, I would say this morning that there is no such thing as Jewish blood because everyone descends from Adam. There is only Adamic blood. And so what God did by calling Abraham, separating him, giving him promises, saying, in your seed the nations are going to be blessed— He was not saying, I am going to save every one of your physical descendants, because the rest of redemptive history said he didn't do that. And so what Paul's saying is, that promise that God gave Abraham, that the Redeemer was going to come and bless the nations, and that that there was going to be redemption, was given to the children of promise. The children of promise. Now, Paul does several things here, and one of the great things that the apostle does is he goes back to the Old Testament throughout this section, and he cites various examples, and he pulls various verses of scripture to prove what he's saying, because it could be very easy, and you have to listen carefully. I've had numerous people tell me, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have a word with Paul. Don't do that. Don't be that person. Because the Apostle Paul is writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and the Apostle Paul is not inventing the doctrine of election. Far from John Calvin inventing it, neither did the Apostle Paul. It is strewn everywhere in the pages of Scripture because God has breathed it out. And when Paul goes to explain this principle of not all Israel are of Israel, he goes right back to the patriarchal narrative surrounding Abraham. If you're going to argue with people and say, it's not all the physical descendants, but the the children of promise, then you should go right to the source at the inception of God's promise to Abraham. And you should see that principle there, and Paul sees it. And so Paul essentially says, in the first example that he gives, he essentially says, it's Isaac, not Ishmael. It's Isaac, not Ishmael. Now, You remember the narrative, Abraham couldn't have any children, Sarah was barren, he was 100, she was 90, the Lord kept saying, you're going to have a child, Abraham kind of lost hope and faith, he took Sarah's handmaiden Hagar, who Sarah unwisely told him to take to himself to raise up children, he had Ishmael, 
And then Sarah conceives 13 years later, has Isaac, and God sends Ishmael away. Why? Because Isaac was the son of promise. Ishmael was the child of the flesh. Ishmael was human strength trying to get salvation. Isaac was God saying, I'm going to fulfill my promise. Flesh, promise. Works, grace. That's the contrast. It's not the children of the flesh. It's the children of the promise. It's Isaac. It's not Ishmael. Now, someone could hear that and could say, okay, I hear that, Paul. But the Jews came from Isaac, and the 12 Arab nations of that day came from Ishmael. So what you're saying is God really chose ethnic Israel, and that undermines your point. And so Paul does something really brilliant, and he goes a couple chapters further, and he says, okay, it's not Isaac, it's Isaac, not Ishmael. And if you want this pressed home even greater, it's Jacob, not Esau. Now, why is that an even more potent argument for God's election of some over the other? Because Jacob and Esau had the same father, Isaac, the son of promise. And they had the same mother, Rebekah. And they were born in the same womb at the same time. I mean, short of them looking so different when they came out, they have exactly the same physical standing, exactly the same birth privileges. They are in exactly the same example. In fact, this is so brilliant. Only God could have done this. Here are some twins from the son of promise. And one is loved and one is hated before they ever did anything. Now, notice what Paul does. Notice, he says in verse 10, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born or had done anything either good or bad in order that the God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, now listen carefully, he quotes Malachi 1-2. So Paul goes back to the Old Testament, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Now let me say this this morning. I don't think he's saying Jacob I have loved a lot, and Esau I've loved less than Jacob. He literally says, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. Now, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, I hate this, let me, let me clear the air for you real quick. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was preaching on this passage once. There's a famous story of a woman interrupting the service while he's preaching this, and she cries out, how could God hate Esau? And Spurgeon looked at her and he said, ma'am, my concern is not with how God could hate Esau, but with how he could love Jacob. You see, this is the same Apostle Paul who back in chapter 3 said, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who does good. Their throats are an open tomb. That's you. That's you. That's me. That's all of us. Their feet are swift to run to evil. All of us. Dead in sins and trespasses, under the wrath of God, deserving judgment, starting with me, every one of us. And so it's remarkable that God would set his electing grace and love upon one and not another because he doesn't have to. 
Now, I'm going to unpack that further for you when we talk about the principle, but as we just think about the people here, listen to this. John Calvin says, God can see nothing in the corrupt nature of man such as was in Esau and Jacob. God can see nothing in the corrupt nature of man as such was in Esau and Jacob to induce him to manifest his favor. When it says that they had done no good or evil, what Paul is taking for granted must be that they were both the children of Adam, by nature sinful and endued with not a particle of righteousness. You see, while they had not done any actual good or evil when God chose Jacob and passed over Esau, they both deserved the judgment of God. They both were born sinful. They both were born enemies of God by nature. In fact, when we look at Jacob, and this is the marvelous thing about the grace of God in the gospel, and oh, take note of this as good news. When you look at Jacob, Jacob almost looks worse than Esau in the things that he does. Jacob is a perpetual pathological deceiver. He lies and deceives constantly to get his way. He manipulates to get his way. There is very little about Jacob until the end of his life, after God has dealt with him through Laban deceiving the deceiver, that looks like he is a godly man. The better part of his life, he looks like what he is, a scoundrel and a deceiver. And yet God said, I am going to redeem Jacob because I love Jacob, and I am not going to redeem Esau because I hate Esau. Now, again, this is the big pill without the easy coating. We had a dog when I was a kid. I just remember we had to hide everything in, in bread. There's no bread to hide this pill in. This, this is something we have to just, we have to take and receive and say, this is what God's word says. And it says it everywhere. You know, Paul cites the Old Testament just about nine times, directly or by way of allusion, in just this section. He goes back to Genesis to prove that it's Isaac, not Ishmael. He goes back to Genesis to say God's word of promise, came to Sarah and said, you're going to have a son next year. He goes to Exodus in just a moment, and he points to Pharaoh, and we're going to see that. He went to Genesis about Jacob and Esau. He goes to Malachi about Jacob and Esau. He'll go to Hosea at the end of this uh, section, and he'll go to Isaiah twice at the end of this section. And what that means is that you ought to be able to open the Old Testament and see the same things Paul is bringing out here strewn throughout the pages of the Old Testament about who are the real people of God's sovereign electing grace. Listen to this. Spurgeon, who I mentioned a minute ago, said, I can tell you the reason why God loved Jacob. He said, I can tell you the reason why God loved Jacob. It is sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. That's it. He decided to be gracious. Spurgeon says there was nothing in Jacob that could make God love him. There was everything about him that should have made God hate him, as much as he did Esau, and a great deal more. But because God was infinitely gracious, he loved Jacob, and because he was sovereign in his dispensation of this grace, Spurgeon says he chose Jacob as the object of that love. Um, now, the people of God's sovereign electing grace are there set out. And are shorthanded there in verse 8, the children of the promise. I want to say this this morning. If, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, that means you are a child of the promise. It means God has loved you and called you. 
Um, this is not meant to be some philosophical musing that you can sit around and think through whether you like it or not. By the way, I don't know if you know this, I loved Calvin and Hobbes growing up. Calvin is named after John Calvin, Hobbes after Thomas Hobbes. And um, Bill Watterson, I think that's his name, you'll correct me if not, um, had a fascination with the philosophy of Calvin and Hobbes. Um, but he mistakenly thought that the Calvinistic God was this tyrant who unjustly did all these things to just, just be a power broker. God's power is certainly part of what Paul is saying in here. But God's great grace and him wanting to make known the greatness of that grace to the children of promise is what is highlighted. That's what Paul is saying. Why do some believe? Because they are the children of the promise. Because God shows them in Christ. Because God drew them with cords of love. Because God showed them his sovereign grace. Listen, anything short of this is cheap. This is, on Judgment Day, this is the big grace that you better believe in now. Because that's what sustains God's people through this life and for all of eternity. Um, I will say this this morning. If, if people hate this, it's because they're allowing self-righteousness to rule and reign in their hearts and minds. It's the only reason people hate this, is because they're proud and self-righteous. And they think, I deserve better. God should love me. I should have this. How? That's not fair. Why? And Paul anticipates all those objections. It's not fair. He'll deal with that in verse 14. Well, God, do whatever he wants. Why does it even matter? He'll do that later on in this section. Um, I want us to consider, though, the principle of God's sovereign electing grace toward the people of his grace. You know, if you are one that is saying right now, that's not fair, then you have accurately understood what Paul is writing. That's the good news. If you're thinking that's not fair, you have rightly heard what Paul has said. And that's a good thing because a lot of people twist this passage. They, they say Paul's talking about the election of a nation, national Israel. No, he's not. He's talking about individuals. And he's going to explain the principle of his sovereign grace. Now notice this. Notice this, Paul does this in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Essentially he says, that's not fair. It's not fair. And so Paul says, well, let's hear what he said to Moses in Exodus 33. Look at verse 15. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion now, that is one of the clearest early divine pronouncements of the sovereign mercy and grace of God. I will have mercy on whom I will. I'll have compassion on whom I will. Um, Sinclair Ferguson says this, there's absolutely nothing in you to have caused God to have mercy on you. Not one single shred of your sanctification has ever caused God to have mercy on you. The only reason God has had mercy on you is because he's had mercy on you. Don't miss that. There's not one shred of your sanctification, your effort to live a holy life that has ever made you the object of God's mercy. The only thing is that God has said, I am going to be merciful to you. I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful. I will be compassionate to whom I will. By the way, 
Notice what Paul says in verse 16. So then it depends not on human will. Notice that. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has shown mercy. You know, I was thinking about this this week in my my 16, 17 years of pastoral ministry. I have had more people than I can remember or count ask me, what about the free will of man? Very common question. And it's an important question and one that we need to know answers to. I have not had one person ever ask me, what about the free will of God? I want you to think about this. God is infinite. We are finite. What about my will? What about the infinite God's free will? And the reason why people do that is because we like to turn things on their head and we want to have a man-centered view of reality rather than a God-centered view of reality. Listen to this. This is amazing. Um, John Piper says, this is a continental divide in theology. This is a continental divide in theology. Piper says, he says, he says, if you really believe this, all the rivers of your thinking run toward God. If you do not, all the rivers run toward man. Now listen, you don't want the rivers of your thinking to run toward man. You want them to run toward God. And so notice Paul says, it's not what depends on human will or effort, but on God who has mercy. And then notice verse 18. He has mercy on whomever he wills. You see, you see the greatness of the, the free will of God? That's enormous. Like, if you remove this or lose this, you have such a perverted view of God, you will never understand what God is really like. But when we get this, it radically changes everything we think about. It changes how we talk. It changes our desire to depend on him more. If we think it's about us and our will, we are going to turn in on ourselves. And when the bottom falls out, you will have no strong tower. But if you understand that God is free in his will, that he does whatever he pleases, that he has mercy on whom he will, you will trust him fully for that mercy. And you will be assured from showing that to you. Some people hate this because they want to get God off the hook. Well, if he could save everybody, why doesn't he? Well, if he could damn everybody, why doesn't he? Gotcha. Just saying, that's as potent and apropos a question as if he could save everybody. If he could just damn everybody, why didn't he? And it doesn't get God off the hook. You see, God is sovereign in all his works. Now, the mercy that he shows you is not because of anything you do. The wrath that the vessels of wrath get is entirely justified based on their, their works and their lives and the evil they've done. Those of us that are going to go to glory for all eternity, it is only because of the mercy of God. Those that go to hell forever, it is all because they deserve it. Now, these are deep these are deep and mysterious things. Um, Jonathan Edwards, listen to this. I just have a, one or two more quotes for you this morning. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. God can either bestow salvation on any of the children of men or refuse it without any prejudice to the glory of any of his attributes. Don't miss that. 
God can either bestow salvation on any of the children of men or refuse it without any prejudice to the glory of his attributes, except where he has been pleased to declare that he will or will not bestow it. That means when God has said, whoever trusts in Christ, if you are trusting in Christ, you can know that he has bestowed sovereign mercy on you. Because he has put his sovereign mercy in his son, has secured it at the cross. And if you're trusting in Christ, then you can know you've been made a vessel of mercy. And if you're not, you ought to know that right now there is the danger of you being a vessel of wrath. As I was at 24 in the far country, unregenerate and and running as far as I could from God. Now... Let me say this, and then we're going to look at the purpose, and then we'll be done. I know it's a lot. Let me say this. There is a danger to us wanting to go further and deeper and try to unpack this more than we can. There is more that we can say, and we're going to see that in a second. But we have to be content, as John Calvin has said, that when God shuts his mouth in Scripture, that we're not going to pry anymore. We need to be content that wherever God has stopped speaking in Scripture, we are not going to try to pry any further. Now, we have seen the people of God's sovereign electing grace. We have seen the principle of God's sovereign electing grace. And now thirdly, and very briefly, I want you to see the purpose of God's sovereign electing grace. Why? Why? Why does God do this? Why did God create a world that he ordained to fall in order to bring judgment and redemption in that world? Judgment on the wicked, redemption on vessels of mercy. Why? Why does he do this? Well, I think Paul gives us that answer, and I think he does so. And these are very profound verses. I, if, I could, if I could encourage you to take a pen and mark up your Bible, make a note, write this down, meditate on it, read it. These are two of the most important verses in all scripture. Notice Paul explains the purpose in verse 22 and 23. Notice there are two things. One, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? That's the first thing. I'll break that down in a second. And number two, in order to make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy. Why does God decide to love one and not another? Why does God decide to choose one and not another? Why does God say, I will have mercy on this one and not on this one? Because God wants to show off his attributes. And if you were God, you would want to do the same thing. You're a human and you want to show off your attributes. You know, I used to have people say to me, that's, that's, I'll never serve a God that has to get all the glory. Well, you want all the glory and you're not God? It's why everybody wants to be famous. It's why we have social media influencers. Everyone wants to show off what they think they are. God, who is infinitely holy, infinitely perfect, infinitely just, infinitely gracious, infinitely good, wants to show off his wrath and power and his mercy and grace. And the fallen world, justly deserving his wrath, every creature, every one of us, is the perfect platform for him to display those attributes. Uh, Paul tells us about Pharaoh, and he proves that point from Pharaoh. Notice back in verse 17, the scripture says to Pharaoh, 
For this purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Why? Why does Exodus say, Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened his heart. It says it. I'm not making this up. John Calvin's not. This is Moses. This is in Exodus. Pharaoh hardened his heart, the Lord hardened his heart. Why? Because God wanted to show his power in destroying the Egyptians and delivering Israel and bringing them through the sea. He wanted to show his justice, his wrath, and his power on that people oppressing Israel. And he wanted to show his mercy and grace to his people. And Paul's saying, and that's why he saves some and passes over others, leaving them to be vessels of wrath. Um, By the way, if someone ever asked you to explain why God created the world, that was Jonathan Edwards' answer in his book, The End for Which God Created the World. Edwards says, God does everything to display his attributes. That's good news if you're trusting in Christ. That's good news because that means that if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus as your Savior, that you are a vessel of mercy. And notice the way Paul says this. Notice this. He says in verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy for all eternity, God is going to make known the riches of his glory. That means means 10,000 years into glory, God's going to show you new sides to his mercy and grace. That means 100,000 years into glory, God's going to show you more of his glory, more of the riches of his glory for all eternity. You're never going to exhaust that. You're never going to come to a place where God's not breaking the riches of his grace and his kindness open on your head for all eternity. Paul says that in Ephesians 2, verses verses 6 and 7. He says it here, that God wants to show you the riches of his grace and glory in Christ for all eternity. Now, let me say this this morning. If you are here and you have never sort of come to terms with these things, let me say this. The right response to this is to worship. The right response to this is to worship. What should this do in my heart? It should make me fall on my face and say, oh God, thank you that you have had mercy on me. Thank you for showing me your mercy. Thank you for making me see my need for Christ. Thank you that I am not a vessel of wrath. That's the first thing it should do. Lord, I don't deserve your mercy. You didn't have to be merciful to me. I don't know why you would. We sing, the greatest hymns we sing have verses like, why was I made to hear his voice and enter while there's room, while thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Those are the things that ought to melt our hearts and make us weep before the throne of grace. Why was I made? Not because I went to church every Sunday, not because I grew up in a Christian home. It's not the children of the flesh, the children of the promise. Those are great blessings. They are enormous blessings, but that's not why. Not because I've read my Bible so much, I know it so well. Not because I serve in a capacity of ways in the church. None of those things. We're taking it all off the table. We're falling on our face and we're saying, you are God, I am not. You have had mercy, thank you for having mercy on me. That, that, more than sitting around being like, I don't know, philosophically, if I agree, that's the right response. That's what Paul wants you to do. In fact, Paul is going to come to the end of this section, Romans 9 through 11, and he's going to say, oh, the depths of the riches 
both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his ways. How does Paul end this? He worships. He worships. By the way, that's what the Lord wants. It doesn't matter what I tell you. That's what he wants. He wants you to worship him for his mercy. Let me say this this morning. If you're here and you're wondering, well, how do I know if I'm elect? I mean, I've trusted in Christ, but I don't really know. Well, again, that's mistaken. If you see your need for the Lord Jesus, you have been made a vessel of mercy. Because only vessels of mercy see their need for Christ, and all the vessels of mercy see their need for Christ. Notice, Paul says at the very end, and we'll wrap this up. He says, verse 24, even us, whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, and he says, those that were not my people are now my people. Those who are not loved are now loved. And every Jew and Gentile that he has said, I am going to have mercy on, are going to be brought together in one body as the true Israel of God to worship him, to thank him, and to receive from him the riches of his glory for all eternity. Now, if you're not trusting in the Lord Jesus, um, I want to say this cautiously this morning. You probably should be asking yourself what I asked 22 years ago. Did he make me to be a vessel of wrath? Because it doesn't matter whether you like it or not. It doesn't change the fact that he's done that. That some will be vessels of wrath and some will be vessels of mercy. The potter has power of the clay and he can do whatever he wants. But if you recognize that he's done that, that also should be the impetus for driving you to the Savior as it did for me. Because there's one way to know whether you're a vessel of mercy. Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus? It's not what makes you a vessel of mercy. It's how you know that you're a vessel of mercy. I hope that as you hear these things, you will reflect on the people of God's sovereign electing grace, the principle of that sovereign electing grace, and the purpose of his sovereign electing grace, especially as you trust in the Lord Jesus, having been made a vessel of his mercy. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, these are difficult and weighty truths, ones that we find very difficult to get our minds around. And also, Lord, at times, ones that we have found difficult to get our hearts in line with. And yet, our God, we acknowledge that you are sovereign and we are not. We acknowledge, Lord, that you are sustained by yourself, that your will is ultimate and not ours. And Lord, we acknowledge that you have set your electing love and grace on vessels of mercy, and you have passed by and tolerated vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. We pray, our God, that you would help us as we receive these truths, not just to know them in our minds, but to be driven to worship you for the glory of your sovereign grace and mercy, for the greatness, for the riches of your glory. And Lord, we pray that above all things, you would make us to see our need for the Lord Jesus so that we might know that we have been made vessels of mercy prepared for glory. And so, our God, we do pray that you would work in us to that end, that you would work in every man, woman, and boy and girl here to that end. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.